In the 60s and into the 70s, there was an explosion in the British pop music business as the Beatles broke up and bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and many others rose to prominence. It was the start of a cultural revolution that continued over the next few decades. Live music audiences got more demanding and wanted to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular. This is the story of how, as the music industry evolved, artists and bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe and America to satisfy those demands, as told by some of the people that made it happen. The worlds of theatre and television collided, and in the vanguard was a small group of people in a London company that helped pioneer rock and roll lighting and visual production. Welcome to your very own Backstage Pass. Hello, my name is Chris Smith, and I want to give you a backstage pass and take you on a journey back to the day when the staging and the visual presentation of rock and roll shows came of age. In the 60s, pop concerts were fairly unsophisticated events. The shows were staged in either cinemas on wide, pencil-thin stages, or in urban, utilitarian, civic, or multifunctional university halls. The sound systems were primitive, with the performers usually being drowned out by hysterical, screaming, cheering audiences of largely teenage girls, and with lighting that was as bland as the halls, with the artists illuminated by overhead fluorescent lights. John, George, Paul and Ringo, the lads from Liverpool, became household names and appeared on television not only in specialist music programmes when they played their latest vinyl record release, but also in the news and documentary programming, on chat shows or in any other format of programme where they could be squeezed in. Alongside the Beatles, other bands such as the Rolling Stones, The Who, Led Zeppelin and so many others rose to prominence, garnering ever larger live audiences. Given that this was happening about 50 years ago now, and rock and roll's production journey took a somewhat long and winding road, it's perhaps difficult to remember, or for those not around at the time, to realise how crude and basic these early rock shows really were. But as live music audiences grew, ticket holders began to get more demanding and wanted not just to go and hear the music they played, but to see concerts that were dramatic and spectacular, a melding of sound and vision. You will hear how at the dawn of the 70s, the live music industry saw the start of a staging revolution in the presentation of rock and roll shows that continues to this day. The current staging of shows with massive lighting rigs and sound systems is a far cry from those early days, and these podcasts will tell the story of how, as the music industry evolved, bands took to the road to tour the UK, Europe, America, and eventually the world to satisfy those demands. Your personal backstage pass 
will allow you to hear and feel how it all started, as told by some of those that were there at these moments of creation, how they made it happen, as they recount their part in rock and roll's history. Now the seats are all empty. Let the roadies take the stage. Pack it up and tear it down. They're the first to come and the last to leave. Working for that minimum wage. They'll set it up in another town. Tonight the people were so fine. I was amongst them, and having trained to work backstage in the theatre, in the early 70s I became involved with a small UK lighting and production company in London called ESP Lighting. Over a few short years the company grew in reputation, and during my time its client list expanded and became like a roll call of rock and roll's most iconic acts. Nights in white satin Never reaching the end Letters I've written Never meaning to send I'd always missed with these eyes before just what the truth is. To begin with, it was fairly small scale. The first tour I did was the Moody Blues, who had just two small trucks carrying the PA system, the band's clothes and instruments, and a minimal number of stage lights. Unloading and setting up at a venue would take a few hours or less, whereas at the end of my time with the company, the equipment was carried in a fleet of articulated or semi-trucks, and it could take days using forklifts, cranes, and an army of road crew to set up. Tours and shows were huge logistical and technical operations. Setting off on the road was almost like setting off to a great war, with ever more hectic touring schedules. In the beginning, though, it was on a much smaller scale when I toured with Cat Stevens, The Who and others, including the Straubs on a UK tour to promote their number one hit single, Part of the Union, before touring America with them. Now I'm a union man, amazed at what I am. I say what I think that the company stinks Yes, I'm a union man When we meet in the local hall I'll be voting with them all With a hell of a shout It's out, brothers, out And the rise of the factories fall On the Straub's UK tour I remember we crisscrossed the country for several weeks travelling overnight from one end of the country to the other, and back again, with no discernible pattern or logic to the itinerary. Every day we got more and more tired, to the point beyond exhaustion, 
and every day there'd be a different problem to solve. On one occasion, for example, we had to pay the local fish and chip shop next to the venue to put up a closed sign so that we could hook into their mains power, as the hall we played at couldn't sustain the electrical supply required by the lighting and sound equipment for the show. From a few lights and small PA systems, the production and staging of shows grew. Vast lighting rigs and enormous stacks of speakers dwarfed those performing. Elaborate stage sets and special effects took the place of a few curtains, maybe a drum riser and plain overhead white light. To get in and out of venues, the crew had to unload endless numbers of road boxes, rig specialised hydraulic equipment to suspend massive PA systems and hang lights to give the audience the biggest and the best possible sound and light experience. The venues and scale of the shows grew in size too, with sports stadia and outdoor locations taking the place of local smaller halls. I worked as a follow-spot operator on one of the first shows at the old Wembley Football Stadium in the UK, returning there a few years later as ESP's production manager on a show by Elton John. I worked on several shows at Nebworth and in Hyde Park, until my ESP swan song working on the Rolling Stones London shows at Earl's Court in 1976. Over the course of these podcasts, you will hear about what it was like to work with some of rock music's superstars, such as ABBA, Alice Cooper, David Cassidy, Bob Dylan, Donovan, Neil Diamond, Diana Ross, The Rolling Stones, and The Who, amongst many others. Not only was I there, but during my time with ESP, I was fortunate enough to meet and work with an extraordinary bunch of people whose energy, enthusiasm and skills put these shows on stage. Let's hear from them now, starting with Robin Elias, who went on from working with ESP to becoming one of the UK's top rigging experts. For me, that was the beginning of over 20 years of travelling the world, one tour after another, a fantastic adventure. Sex and drugs and rock and roll, huge quantities of cocaine, Loads of booze, no sleep, a seemingly endless supply of beautiful women. I wasn't interested in any of that. Simon Woodruff, who, with his brother Patrick, started with ESP Lighting before both of them went on to establish high-profile careers for themselves. And one of Simon's early jobs was with Jethro Tull, and he remembers... Ian Anderson well. Waiting a spotlight during the show. And um, yeah, it was it was really something. And then Ian Anderson broke his leg, I think, or something. And we had two weeks, we got a call from the management of Jethro Tell saying you can either stay out with the truck and the equipment and have a holiday for two weeks or come back to England. Riley O'Connor joined the company, having travelled to the UK from Canada and went back to work there in a prominent role in the music industry. Riley now shares one of his standout memories of the Rolling Stones 
playing a UK show at Nebworth in 1976. One of the most hilarious moments is sometime in the afternoon, I don't know, between sets, some guy gets up on stage naked and masturbated to 250,000 people. I thought that was pretty hilarious. But he stood on the, the Rolling Stones tongue, right, that was jutting out from the front of the stage. Yeah, that was absolutely classic. And then, uh, you know, before the Stones went on, you know, we were all sitting around. I was sort of monitoring my uh, generators and Keith comes up and asks us if everything's okay. And we go, absolutely. And he goes, right, I guess I have some work to do. And he go up the stairs he went. And that was about my moment for network. Frank Andrews also worked with the Rolling Stones and on one tour ended up driving through Europe in Keith Richards' car. Perhaps it was this chauffeuring that gave Frank a taste for what was to come as he now runs a wedding and conference venue near London. I remember on the Rolling Stones tour, um, Brian, yeah, Brian Croft, was, uh, he asked us if we wanted to drive Keith Richards' um, Bentley Continental I think we were driving it from Holland, somewhere in Holland, to France, across Belgium. And so there was me, Jimmy, Robin and Paul. And uh, I've always wondered why he got us to do that. But having read his book, I think I can guess. <laughs> yeah, the thing was, the car was full of rubbish. It was about a foot of rubbish on the floor. You would have thought he'd clean it out first, anyway. <laughs> John Brown was one of the founding directors of ESP Lighting, and we'll hear more about how the company started and grew in future episodes. But for now, back to John, remembering being on tour with The Who. The Who were a very interesting group to work for, and there was a certain level of aggression around them. Uh, and in that, this, this would have been the early days of trying to use backing tapes running in sync with the band. Uh, an idea that Pete had obviously worked on. And quite frankly, at the time, the technology uh, wasn't good enough to do exactly what Pete wanted to do. And the tapes would run out of sync with the band, and this would infuriate Pete, who at one stage stomped across, say, to Bobby Britton, who was running the tapes from the onstage monitoring position, and grabbed him and dragged him over the top of the board and I'm not sure whether he physically knocked him out, but there was an altercation. And as a result of that, they had to stop the show uh, to allow everything to cool down and to get all the equipment reset and to carry on. Nick Dornan was another early crew member with ESP who went far, quite literally, as he eventually moved from the UK to live in Western Australia. Here he recalls some more rock and roll mayhem. We did a show in Amsterdam where. Um... They double-booked netball for most of the day and we were so late 
getting in there to set up that there was a riot during the concert and they destroyed all the stage gear and uh, luckily the lighting towers were left standing. But uh, follow spots were thrown thrown off their pedestals and uh, we got, um, I think, five nights all expenses paid in the Amsterdam Hilton while they flew more gear out to us. So it was quite an experience. I brought back some uh, beer for Richie Blackmore because he was a a connoisseur of uh, various European beers. I was out on tour with some other band and he called round and uh, had a cup of tea with my mother, went to pick it up, and she was uh, quite stunned. I also went on tour with Donovan for about six weeks as well and everyone uh, forgot about me. And when I came back, they thought, where have you been? And I said, I've been on tour with Donovan for you. Marshall Bissett, as you can probably tell by his accent, had come to London from Scotland to work in the theatre before joining ESP in the early days of the company and found himself having a difference of opinion with Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. So we got to the first night and I thought it went pretty well considering, but the next day I was called into the uh, dressing room and... um, put in a meeting with Ian Anderson, the lead singer, who complained that there was too much light on the first three rows of the audience. And so I said to him, well, we have these lighting towers behind you, and I know that you love this backlight that creates a halo around your hair, and you're in stark silhouette when you're playing your flute. And he goes, yes, but I can't have light traveling and then hitting the front rows of the audience. So trying to be helpful, I said, well, we can either move the lighting system further downstage or you can move upstage uh, with with your monitor. And he just looked at me as if I was crazy. And he said, I couldn't possibly do either of those things. And so I said to him, well, you know, it's, Ian, it's the laws of physics, you know, light travels in a straight line. Marshall and Ian Anderson went their separate ways after Marshall's physics lecture, and we'll hear more from him in a moment. First, though, back to Simon Woodruff, who was swept up in Osmond mania. The Osmonds touring around Europe, first of the boy bands, really, and being in the Rainbow Theatre and the smell of pee. At the end of it, with the girls, you know, so it was sort of, you know Beatles sort of stuff, you know, to see all of that. Um, I, the, the names all sort of mixed up about, about whether you know Elton was before that or, or after, and Queen and all those people. But yeah, it was a, it was a, it was it was it was an incredible time. Here's Marshall Bissett again, having survived the Ian Anderson experience, who went back to his theatrical roots with Diana Ross. The Diana Ross tour was fantastic. Diana Ross did something that 
absolutely endeared me to her, which was she hired a theatre director to do her tour, a guy called Joe Layton. And Joe Layton was the director of Gone with the Wind at Drury Lane Theatre and a very big deal Broadway director. So we rehearsed in the new Victoria Theatre in uh, Victoria. He ran it like a Broadway show. We had a book, we had a stage manager, we had somebody calling cues. Diana Ross wouldn't move three feet on stage without his permission. And it was it was great. Marshall went on to work with Bob Dylan, as did Robin Elias, the ringing expert, who we heard from earlier. Let's hear from them both now on what they remember of working with one of rock and roll's biggest superstars. First, here's Robin. I did a Bob Dylan tour. He was, and still is, a childhood favourite of mine. My, my memories of that tour are twofold, really. One is that, at that stage... I was still, I was in my crossover period between Lighting Man and Rigger, and I used to have to install a front truss and a back truss um, suspended. And usually, when the band turned up for sound checks, I was still climbing up a caving ladder onto the front truss to focus it, or indeed climbing back down the ladder. And uh, the band noticed all this. I remember that on the tour bus, which took us between venues, Bob used to come and sit next to me and um, spent the time trying to persuade me to allow him to climb up that caving ladder onto the front truss at the next gig, something which um, I had to persuade him it wasn't a good idea quite often. My favourite of all was probably the Dylan, Big Dylan tour, because uh, we got to, we got to travel in our own private train, which was a far removed from the Len Wright buses that we would have in the early days in the U. Okay, I got to sit and drink beer with Bob Dylan in a railway carriage going across Europe. Let's have a change of accents and performers as we hear again from our Canadian, Riley O'Connor, and after him, Frank Andrews, as they both recall another set of global superstars. When the ABBA movie came out, for example, uh, I tell everybody, well, I worked on the ABBA tour of Europe and Australia. Um, but it was kind of shaky in the early days because it wasn't, you know, we were this really rough British crew coming into Sweden and uh, very, very proper etiquette had to be followed. And, uh, you know, what, Stig Anderson had his own vision of what what the look should be of ABBA going out and touring and probably wondered about this motley crew that showed up. We went to this um, Wrangler warehouse and we all were able to pick up jackets jeans everything all kind of given to us for the tour and they'd obviously had some deal with them because didn't they used to do all kinds of deals on the side i think but with potatoes in russia and things anyway we all got these tour jackets and they were sort of dark blue i think kind of and with the uh, uh stitched on the back abba in red letters and uh, i guess they were about three inches high as their logo is, um, I rearranged the letters, re-stitched them so it said Barbar. A bit silly, really, I suppose. Super trooper beams are gonna blind me, but I won't feel blue. 
John Brown, along with Brian Croft, who John mentions, were the company's founding directors. And John continues with our ABBA theme. ABBA were, of course, in the forefront, have an interest in the forefront of everything technological that they could use in their show. And they wanted to use video projection, which, of course, is now the norm. In those days, there was only one type of video projector, which was called an Ida 4, made by Philips. And there was one in London that was installed... I think at the new London Theatre in Drury Lane, demonstration was set up quite early one morning and Borgen, Benny and I and Brian and some others all turned up to see it. Unfortunately, it wasn't um, successful in terms of what they wanted to do, because even though it was a very bright projector, it wasn't bright enough compared to stage lighting, so you couldn't actually use it. So after about 20 minutes of when it became obvious, I remember Benny saying, well, I think it's time for a beer. It may have been 10, 10.30 in the morning, but off we went across the road to the nearest pub and the boys sat down and had a couple of beers, much to the amusement of the few very early drinkers that were there as well. Nick Dornan, who we last heard from when he returned from a Donovan tour, recalls another solo performer. One of the... Uh nicest tours I ever did was Neil Diamond around Europe and uh, and at Woven Abbey. And he was uh, such a nice person that uh, we got treated as one of the family and uh, had a great time. And uh, I ended up being taken to uh, America to tour with Neil Diamond there. It was just a very pleasant experience. So Neil had been invited to play Woburn Abbey by uh, the Marquis of Tavistock. So one day, um, Patrick, myself, Neil, and uh, his uh, set designer got in a Learjet and flew to Woburn Abbey. Neil loved it because it was a private plane from Amsterdam and arriving into uh, Luton Airport. And we went there, we looked at the Abbey. I remember we took little samples of the, the, the stonework outside the Abbey so that the scenic designers in New York could paint a precise set of um, matching uh, backdrops that would go with it. And we did everything, we advanced it. And so there was time left. So we went to, um, we went to the local pub and uh, Paul and uh, Patrick and George Ponchard from Fiorentino Associates. And there was a little a band playing there. And slowly they realized that they had Neil Diamond in, in there. And they started playing a couple of Neil songs. Neil stopped short of getting up and playing with them. But he had the, he had the best time and he was very approachable. That was Marshall Bissett. Another one who liked to drink was Keith Moon, as Riley O'Connor tells us. And it was one of those times when when um, Keith Moon just does not want to sleep. So he's like literally knocking on everyone's door to find a party. And he comes into, uh, I was betting with uh, a roommate with this guy named uh, uh, Chris. I can't remember his last name. And Keith stays with us till 5 a.m. drinking. And um, then we kick him out of our room and... 
all I remember is him going downstairs because there was this guy. It was five o'clock in the morning. Daylight starts breaking, and there's this poor gardener raking the pathway, and he starts screaming at him to be quiet. And Chris and I are leaning out the window, going, "Well, this is funny. Here's this guy. Keith is making more noise than the gardener raking, and he's screaming at him to be quiet." And that was my moment of hilarity with Keith Moon. The first gig of the 73 tour was in San Francisco at the Cow Palace, which was a particularly unpleasant venue outside San Francisco. And Keith was well known for overindulging in all sorts of different things. And halfway through the show, he just collapsed uh, over the front of the drums and was unable to play on. And the show came to a halt. And after a while, after he was removed and got whatever assistance he needed, Pete, uh, Pete and Roger appealed to the crowd to see if there was a drummer who was willing to come up and play the rest of the show. A young American, whose name I've forgotten, but it's all documented on the internet, clambered into Pete's, into Keith's drum kit and did a pretty good job. That was John Brown again with another memory of the legendary Keith Moon. You may recall that we heard earlier from Simon Woodruff about working with the Osmonds, and he now recounts how they celebrated the manager's birthday. The Osmonds, I remember, had the first private plane I ever went on. It was a plane they'd rented from Alitalia. I remember doing the Get Out in sweden and the band by that time had got on the airplane and were sitting waiting for us and we drove across the tarmac straight onto the airplane and flew down to paris overnight a fantastic experience in fact on that show imagine this it was um ed leffler was the manager of the osmonds in those days and it was his birthday and marie osmond had baked him a cake with candles and at twenty nine thousand feet the band who had smuggled their brass instruments onto the plane started playing Happy Birthday and Marie carried a candle-lit cake down the aisle of the aeroplane and we all sang Happy Birthday. And fantastic stuff. Mick Jagger was another icon of the time, but unlike Keith Moon, Jagger has survived. At one time, he even put his life literally in Robin Eliza's hands. Something for you to do between the set and the encore. And that something um, involved, there was a cherry picker parked between the front of the stage and the barrier in the outdoor show format. And there they were, the quarter of a million cheering people. Um, The cherry picker was in in that gap full of security guys and what have you, so it wasn't very well cordoned off. And I was supposed to drive that cherry picker. As Keith came on to start the encore, playing the first bars of Satisfaction, I, I had to drive that cherry picker up into the wings um, where Mick would appear singing Satisfaction. I had to get him in the basket and swoop over the crowd and put him down in the centre of the stage. So nobody had told Mick that his driver was a different person. He was extremely nervous about this. And I found I actually had to physically lift him in at the top because he was so nervous and uh, swoop over the crowd and 
deposit them in the middle of the stage, which I found extremely exciting. Obviously, to me, those quarter of a million people, or seemingly a quarter of a million people, weren't cheering Mick singing, they're all cheering my driving. Jimmy Barnett also worked with the Stones and was their lighting designer on many tours and shows. So in 1973, I was... I was extremely fortunate really to work with with who I consider one of the world's you know supreme stage performers which is Mick Jagger you know you know he really is one of a kind he's intelligent he's erudite he's creative and he's very canny you know and for nearly 60 years he's kept a small group of renegade musicians on side you know still attracting huge audiences across the globe it's extraordinary I learned a lot from him, but uh, but it wasn't much through personal interaction. But he was an expert in, expert in, in stagecraft. He knew how to fully capture an audience, you know, and drive them to the point of frenzy sometimes. Um, and there's only, you know, I was, I, was 20, I was only 23 and I was still pretty green. And I only remember one incident when Keith actually kind of smiled at me. They had recruited an American guy from the Fillmore East, I think, in New York. And he was he was a replacement lighting designer for Chip Monk. And, um, but he didn't want to work the lighting desk. All he wanted to do was sort of sit out front, look for chicks, you know, and call the cues for the follow spots. So Brian suggested I ran the desk, lighting desk, which I did from, from the side of the stage, primarily so I could be sort of close to the band and, and most importantly, watch Keith, who, who was the musical director of the band. He would cue the band. And George was a nice guy and we got on well and we'd done a few shows and we were starting to gel quite well. And, and before the show, he and I would sometimes go down to the dressing room and pick up a couple of guitars and have a bit of a jam. And, and the band w- wouldn't normally turn up to maybe 10 or 15 minutes before the show. But this one time they arrived early and we were sitting in the dressing room playing a couple of, you know, Keith's best gu- guitars. Suddenly the band arrived. The whole band troop in and we went, oh, shit, and stopped playing. Keith smiled and goes, no, guys, keep on playing, keep on playing. So George and I launched into the last time and we all had a good laugh. And Keith said, oh, you should come up on stage with us. But that was the only time I remember me actually being kind of nice and smiling. Let's finish with ESP's founders, John Brown and Brian Croft. Brian, who we haven't heard from yet, like Jimmy, worked with the Stones extensively. But first, here's John Brown again. 72 Alice Cooper European tour was again an early experience of what this life was going to be like on the road. One of the things we had was our own aeroplane, which we all travelled in, which was, although it wasn't a jet, the whole crew and the band travelled together. So it was quite an experience. I hadn't realised that... um, Alice, who'd already been successful for a number of years, was in fact the same age of me at the time, which was only 22. And he was off stage. He was an incredibly nice guy. And they used to have a pallet load of Schlitz beer delivered to every venue. I think it must have been in the rider. And uh, I remember sitting backstage with Vince, as we all called him, drinking beer and chatting about life. But for some reason on that tour, apart from being the assistant to their very clever lighting designer, I was given the job of looking after the snake. Now, uh, anyone who's seen an Alice Cooper show will know that uh, Alice likes to use a snake. And I don't know what type of snake it was, but it wasn't venomous. And it lived in a little carrying case 
when it was being moved from country to country. I don't know who actually looked after the paperwork, but anyway, I, I had to uh, keep it in my hotel room. And <laughs> on one of the things you had to do was to leave it in the bathroom. Uh, you put some tepid water in the bottom of the bath. plan was that Snape would go to sleep and not disturb anyone. So we were staying at the George Saint, which is a very, very fancy hotel in France, which was, again, another one of the benefits of being in this business. You got to stay in very nice places most of the time. Um, but unfortunately, we, went, we, we all went out for a meal. But unfortunately, a maid did not take notice of the do not disturb and went in to clean the bathroom or check it. And the snake, of course, had climbed out of the bath and was just crawling its way along the top of the tiles. And she went crazy and all hell broke loose. Here's John's fellow director, Brian Croft. We were actually doing full production rehearsals for the Queen Tour at um, Elstree Studios in the autumn of 75. The production manager was my dear friend, the late, great Jerry Stickles. Um, it was a uh, final run-through time, and they had dedicated a day or two to making a promo video of what would look like a live performance. The film crew took a lunch break one day, and we headed down to the bar. The band was still working, and the director was there. One of our crew volunteered to stay behind and babysit the rig. And uh, when we got back, he, uh, a nice uh, Canadian kid called Riley O'Connor, he had jury-rigged a scaff bar at about head height with some profile spots on it and light, uh, to light the, the, the band's faces, the four band members. And it turns out that they had just shot what transpired to be probably the most watched music video of all time, Bohemian Rhapsody. David Cassidy was a, a major client and, of course, a very big star at the time. I personally uh, was the lighting designer of all of the European tours. There was one very, very entertaining day. He, there was a concert, I think it was the Enemy Pole Winners concert, or no, it probably was actually some uh, magazine more focused on younger members of society than enemy at the Wembley Arena, which takes about eight to 10,000 people. And they had three concerts in one day because of the age group, uh, because obviously David Cassidy was very popular with young girls through to teenagers. So they had three concerts, one in the afternoon, one late afternoon and one in the evening. As a result of this, by about six o'clock or seven o'clock in the evening, the before the second, third show, there were most of the 16,000 people who had been at the first show had stayed around the arena in the hope that they might get to see Dave. Add in the 8,000 turning up to see him in the last show, 
and you had 24,000 people or thereabouts surrounding the arena. There was no way in, no way out. There was absolute mayhem. And every single one of them was a young girl screaming at the top of their voices. Memories of uh, Beatlemania, but it was David Cassidy mania. We played, um, we played some outdoor gigs in 75, Stone's Tour of America. Without the uh, effects that you had on the indoor shows on the Lotus stage, which were like trapdoors and lifts and inflatable phalluses and smoking dragons' heads and swinging out over the punters' heads and all that on a rope, um, Mick needed stuff to do. And he asked me if I thought we c- could have him make his entrance on an elephant, no doubt, with a beautiful Rajah's turban. Of course, I said yes. So for the show in Memphis, an elephant was delivered, and I had a big pallet made up with side rails um, and a big forklift truck to lift the whole thing onto the side of the stage. And uh, that all worked. So it came to rehearsal time, and we were getting close to showtime and I went to see Mick in the dressing room and he said sorry we're going to have to can the elephant I looked disappointed I guess apparently Keith had delivered an ultimatum it's either me or the effing elephant Um, I don't think elephants can play guitar too well not with those toenails to Bombay a travelling circus came. They brought an intelligent elephant, and Nelly was her name. One dark night, she slipped her iron chain, and off she ran to Hindustan and was never seen again. As Nellie packs her trunk, it's time for us to part until the next time. When you'll hear about the origins of ESP lighting, its birth pangs, and how the company developed into the trailblazing pioneer that it was, setting a benchmark for the future in the music business. Backstage Pass is a podcast miniseries produced by Chris Smith and Christian Swain, edited by Jerry Danielson, and is a joint production with Pantheon Podcasts, the home for music lovers. We look forward to having you back on our journey. Until then, remember to keep the lights on.